you start by feeling. It's not a mental thing. It's really a feeling thing. Uh, trusting your senses, trusting your body, trusting the feelings that are coming, how you respond to one thing or another. Bodies don't lie. They're very sophisticated sensory GPS systems. It's impossible for our bodies to lie. Mm -hmm. And so beginning to make a relationship with your body, a very personal relationship, trusting, trusting your body. Life is less lonely when you have this relationship of trust with yourself and trust with your body, trust in the earth. This is Aliveness. I'm your host, Allison Crossway, a guide and former psychotherapist here to empower you to break out of your old patterns, shift into a new state of being, and ignite your aliveness. So I'm really excited today because I am here with Julie McIntyre. And I found Julie's work through her book, Sex and the Intelligence of the Heart. Nature, Intimacy, and Sexual Energy. And as you all know, sexuality is something that I pay a lot of attention to, that we talk a lot about. And I found it difficult to find books I really resonate with. And the moment I started reading Julie's book, I thought, oh my gosh, I've come home. Because the strength of her heart came first. Mm -hmm. And I felt that longing for heart intimacy and the intimacy with self that comes before. A pleasure and an honor. And thank you for that wonderfully kind introduction. I'm really excited. So as a way of starting to get to know you, could you talk about how this book came to be in the world? I can. It came into the world with a lot of resistance. A lot of resistance and a lot of magic. While I was writing, it seemed terribly, terribly difficult and vulnerable and heart-wrenching. And I struggled to write it and depressed many days to get up and face the writing again. And then sometimes there was just magic and it just flowed. And because I could shift into this other state to and drop into what I really wanted to say and what was important. And what made that book work was that the audience I was writing to was my 16-year-old self. So I wrote that book and told the things in that book that my 16-year-old needed to hear, loved to hear, still needed to hear as I was writing it. Once I figured out that piece, then it started to work. And I put a lot into that book. I might not have another chance to talk to my 16-year-old and tell her these things. So I'm going to put all of it in there, right? And then I thought, well, the second book will be easy. The title was easy. It just dropped into my lap. And people would say, oh, the second book's the hardest. And as I'm getting into it, I'm intending to agree. And looking back at the first one, thinking, well, that was a cakewalk. Oh, wow. Well, if that was a cakewalk, what you just described... This must be some kind of odyssey. I'm so moved having read the book and had a lot of feelings myself as I read it. I'm so moved hearing that you wrote it to your 16-year-old self. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, we grow up. There's a lot of information that is missed as we're growing up. And I think now it's even more so. But I know for me and I know for a lot of my peers and even seeing young people now, I can see gaps in their education and gaps in the training. And so I set out to fill in the gaps myself. I consciously made a decision 
very young because of my relationship with plants who started to show me that there was another way, that there wasn't just the human world that was dysfunctional and broken and pieces missing, but that there is another way to be in the world. There's another way to have relationships. There's another way to be fulfilled and to have life purpose and to have a life filled with love and intimacy and spontaneity. And I sought out to find those things. And that culminated in the first book. So I have a couple more questions about the first book. The first one is, if someone's listening to you talking and saying, yes, I know there's more. I mean, other than reading your book, which they should, what would you say is like the first thing? Because I feel like there's so much to take apart and so many gaps, so many misunderstandings. How would one start? You start by feeling. It's not a mental thing. It's really a feeling thing. Uh, trusting your senses, trusting your body, trusting the feelings that are coming, how you respond to one thing or another. For example, you're going to a workshop or a conference where there's numerous teachers. So one of the first herb conferences I went to, and I had the brochure in my hand and I was looking at the teachers and I was so naive and really not very well educated about the things of the world but driven and following this drive, following this energy to make myself uncomfortable because there was such a drive to do something, to find something. So I discomforted myself numerous times in in situations. And I was at this conference looking at the brochure of all the teachers listed and the descriptions of their workshops. And any teacher and description that stood out, that felt like that was it. There was a feeling response. Those are the teachers. Those are the workshops that I went to. So having a sense of discernment is real important. And your feeling sense is part of that discernment. Experientially discerning the movements of your life and the decisions of your life. Because we can make up all kinds of things in our minds and and all the different parts of us that aren't integrated yet. There are all these competing needs inside, but our bodies don't lie. They're very sophisticated sensory GPS systems. It's impossible for our bodies to lie. Mm -hmm. And so beginning to make a relationship with your body, a very personal relationship, trusting, trusting your body. The times that I didn't listen, that I didn't trust, that I overrode that wisdom, bad things happened. I fractured my knee in three places. And those are big teachings of trust, the wisdom. It's not a flaw. It's a guy in innovation because we are expressed expressions and innovations of Gaia, of Earth. And these bodies are our personal aspects of Gaia, of Earth. And so trusting, this is the first place to begin with anything, is trusting your body and then working over time to integrate and trust the self. Trust yourself. Trust your feelings. They're there for a reason. They're very sophisticated navigation systems. And once you do that, things, life is less lonely. Life is less lonely when you have this relationship of trust with yourself and trust with your body. Trust in the earth. So I'm going to briefly share something that is a little bit vulnerable, but I know I'm not alone in this. And in light of what you've just said, I'm so curious about your perspective on this, which is 
when I know that there has been significant attachment trauma in my life, I know it in my head. And one of the ways it manifests is my body can be quite attached, especially when it comes to love and sex, to people who are not, I I like to choose my word carefully, but who are not respecting and honoring of myself. So there becomes this unhealthy attachment. I've come quite a long way in it, but in terms of not acting it out, but it still remains. And the mystery that I see in it is I do trust my body. And yet because of its wounds, there are these complications. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Part of it is a working out of what works and what doesn't. That's part of a discernment, but comes a time where having a conversation with those parts saying we've done those things. They don't feel good. It's time to do something else. Can we try something else? We go outside of that pattern. Can we love ourselves enough to jump that groove, to make a new groove and take the risk to do something else? And there just comes a times where you say, no, that doesn't work. We've done that. Been down that road before, Neo. We've done this. Remember the matrix? Right, right. Um, But to have a conversation is real compassionate. And it's, it's important to not think of it as separate. So there's a tendency to separate. But if you think about it as having a conversation just as you would with a child who's been hurt or wounded or fell off their bike, mm-hmm. pick them up, hold them and say, I'm sorry that happened. And I love you. And we can do this again. Let's try it again. It'll be okay. Let's do it something different. But it's a falling in love with yourself enough that you can say, stop and do something else. But then also using that information from that old pattern as part of your perceptions. So you know what those old patterns look like. You know what they feel like. You know the very initial moves toward that old pattern. So paying keen attention, very keen, sophisticated attention to the very first movement, to the part of you that wants to keep playing that over and over and over again. So noticing the very first movement and saying, okay, It's time to stop and turn and go the other direction. We don't have to do this anymore. We're doing something else and setting limits on that old pattern, setting limits on the part of you that's wounded, that has some investment and replaying it over and over again. Right. Wow. That's right. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. That's a simple answer and it takes work and focus and falling in love with yourself to do it. I mean, it's just, it's as hard as giving myself a half an hour every day to do something just for me. And the most important thing for me is to move, is to be out and to walk or to hike and move. And I have all kinds of games I play with myself and justifications and, you know, this needs to be done and this needs to be done. And we got this deadline and I'm really tired. It's like all these games that I play with myself. So it came to a point where I sat in the discomfort of it for three hours, three fucking hours. I sat in the discomfort of it, talking with myself and feeling all of the resistance. And before I could get up and move, because moving was so important, it had that much gravity, that much resistance to break that pattern. And it was the simplest thing and the most difficult thing to break that pattern and give myself that over and over and over again until it becomes a new behavioral pattern. 
And once I have that new behavioral pattern, then all of these other amazing things can come out of that. Because, right. right? Once you start putting yourself first and giving yourself that energy, that is something that is fulfilling and joyful and may not have any other value except the value of yourself and time for yourself, then that creates its own energy. It starts to build its own momentum and other aspects starts to come through. It's affecting my writing has become easier and much more creative. And so your question is a very fundamental and core question. I'm so glad I asked it. And I'm so glad you've laid it out as clearly as you have. I mean, I'm going to be listening to it a number of times, but something that's really standing out is this three hours of talking to yourself. Like I can imagine it's not easy. It's a commentary actually on our culture and our upbringing. And it's a commentary on our the structure of our society. There's a lot to suss out in that. So part of my work, a big part of my work is changing those patterns, changing those patterns. Yes. I've got so many neurons firing here. Tell us about your second book. The second book, this came about because I was invited to give a talk for an herbal group for the American Herbalist Guild. They have an ongoing series of talks. And I said yes. And then many months went by and the time frame was it was getting closer and closer. And I was starting to panic. And I was walking around going, I need a title. I need a title. I need something. I need a context. What am I going to talk about? And so I was walking around and asking out loud, I need some help here. I need a title for this talk. And immediately, immediately, as if it had been waiting on the other side of the door, waiting for the invitation, waiting for me to ask. And it flew in and landed. And the title is The Confluence of Gaia, Plant Medicine, and the Human Soul. And it landed in front of me. And I stared at this, felt the impact of it. And I thought, I really hope I'm mature enough and big enough and good enough to hold this title that came from Gaia, from the plants. It just, it came from this other place. So that was the inception of it. And I knew as I was putting together the notes for the talk that it was supposed to be a book. This is a book. It has Mm. to be written. And so that's the title. And the context is the confluence, that meeting place of plants and humans and Gaia and the human soul and how they interact and where they meet and the meeting place and what happens. And it's been, it's actually, it's a story of my life, of my first meeting of a plant when I was 10 years old in a troubled family and born a farmer in a repressed Protestant Midwest culture and struggling at 10 years old and already wondering, I don't want to live like this. Please tell me there's something else. And there was a corner of our farm that was protected by two rows at 45 degrees would meet as a a snow barrier to protect the buildings and the land. So there was this windbreak, snowbreak of dogwoods, double row of dogwoods. And at that, where those two rows met, there was this massive, singular, massive old cottonwood tree. Must have been me. I was 10 years old at the time. It seemed like it was a thousand feet tall. Of course it wasn't, but it was big. I couldn't put my arms around it. Probably three 10-year-olds' arms could go around it. 
So I would go there and the clearing is my magical place and it's a place I could go to get away from the psychosis of my family and have some time alone. I'm introverted by nature. And when I went there, something happened. There was an energy exchange. Something from the cottonwood left the cottonwood and touched me and came into me. And in response, because as 10 years old, children know they can do this. They can exchange energy. And so we became, we shared energy and part of the tree came into me and part of me went into the tree and has walked with me ever since and been part of my navigation system. And in that moment, I knew there was something more to follow. And so the second book is that story of what happens when you follow something non-human, something from the natural world, something from Gaia, something from the plants that answers the most spontaneous and innocent of prayers of children that are heard. And it's a story of what I have learned. It's a story of what it means to be in service. It's a story of devotion. It's a story of struggle. And it's a story of understanding what wildness is and what it means and why I hungered for it and sought it out to find, follow the energy to find my true home here in the wilderness and the national forests and wildness of Southwest New Mexico. I'd love to hear more about wildness because that word gets used in many different ways these days. And I sense it's often used differently than what you mean. What I mean is undomesticated, not house trained, out of the box, decolonized, authentic, genuine. I mean it. I use the word wildness that is, that comes from that conversation we were having a few moments ago about knowing yourself and trusting yourself enough to be authentic, a wildness that is in service to the entire circle of life, not just certain aspects of it. Right. That is, there's a fierceness to it. There's a moral integrity, a moral honesty to it. It's an ethical wildness that takes in the sacredness of life of all life, of all forms of life, that it's, for me, it's very animus in orientation. Yeah, that's that, really helpful. And it's an orientation that refuses to believe and refuses to act as if humans are an apex species, that where there's something special about being a human being. And wildness, the way I use it and walk with it and write about it is that we are an expression of Gaia. Human species is an expression of Gaia, just like bacteria, pathogens, trees, plants, wolves, coyotes, snakes, lizards. Our function is a little bit different, but there's nothing extraordinary about us. In fact, I got into an argument with someone recently about, well, humans are special because we feel. Like, actually... Our feeling sense evolved from the earth. Our feeling sense evolved from plants. We're doing it. Plants have been doing it millions of years longer before we emerge. They're the ones, if you ever watch, for example, a grapevine or Virginia creepers, if you watch a viney plant, sweet potatoes are really good to watch because they're so fast. They're so fast and so animated. 
it's extraordinary to watch a sweet potato vine growing. Literally, you can practically see it growing and it will grow six inches overnight. But if you watch their tendrils, they're going out and they're sensing, acutely sensing the environment and finding just exactly the right place to latch on or creeping across the land and feeling the landscape and finding exactly the right place. And they're sensing the entire environment above, below, around, and they're analyzing it and they find exactly the right place to set down a foot, take root and go on again. They were doing that long before that for we did. We can do it because we evolved from the earth. So this seems like a great place to talk about anthropomorphizing, which I always say that word wrong, which I know you have thoughts on. And I catch myself doing it all the time and I'm in process of not doing it. Can you say more about that? Oh, I would love to say more about that. Yeah, it's a difficult word to say. It's actually a very ugly word to say. I mean, it's an ugly word, anthropomorphizing. Difficult. So like a lot of people, I took in a lot of cultural beliefs growing up. And part of become untamed, decolonized, undomesticated is to pay attention to those cultural beliefs and family beliefs and beliefs that we take on as children as part of our survival to make it through to a point where we can start looking inside and questioning, do those beliefs still suit me? Do they match who I am and who I'm becoming? Because beliefs are software programming. They can be changed and they ought to be changed. They ought to be updated regularly to match who you're becoming. And so there was a moment where I foolishly made a comment on a Facebook group, which, yeah, we all make mistakes sometimes, but it turned out to be a brilliant mistake. It was on a Magnificent Tree Facebook group or something, where people were talking about magnificent trees and old trees, and they would post the most magnificent tree in their area. And one day, this man posted a photograph of a magnificent Ilanthus tree, tree of heaven, one of the largest I've ever seen. And it's in a protected park. The magnificent tree and the violent comments about killing the tree, cutting it down. It's an invasive species. It's not native. It colonizes, it takes over large territories. And I watched this. I have not, that is the most vehement attack on a singular plant, a tree that I've ever seen. It was astonishing, violent attacking this tree they wanted to cut it down and the guy who posted it said that's actually it's protected in this park and i made a comment about my relationship with trees like that as it's an ancestor tree it's an elder and as a result i was then attacked and accused of anthropomorphizing and that set me off on a deep contemplation about that word the meaning of it, the assumption that I took on for all of these years about that word. And I walked around with it for quite a while and came to the conclusion that if someone accuses me of anthropomorphizing, the burden of proof is on them. So prove that I am, but you can't. And I came to also that their attack on my relationship with plants was telling me that my relationship is a lie 
which I don't tolerate. And how would they know, knowing nothing about me? And the the fact is, they've got it backwards. It's not putting human descriptions or human emotions and human feelings on non-human things, but it's actually the other way around. What we are feeling sense is not human in origin, and it goes back to the plants. Goethe said this thing, so you can send out the feelings of the soul beyond the bodily limit. That's what our feeling sense is. You can send it out like tendrils, like the feelers, like cilia, out into the world, and you can feel, and we call it intuition. We call it feeling sense intuition. That's not a human innovation. That's a Gaian innovation. So my orientation out of that moment on Facebook was actually a tremendous gift to help me clarify and talk about it in the book, to reorient it. So I'm constantly flipping the human orientation back to the origins. That is so powerful. I mean, I feel it in my body and it's like, I have this sense like that's going to sit for a while. Yeah, because it's cultural. It's in the school system, family orientations, religious orientation. I mean, it's part of the anthropomorphizing and that argument that showed up on that Facebook group. It's a monotheistic Christian, Protestant separation. Humans are exceptional orientation, which I will not participate in. So you mentioned soul sickness in our pre-conversation. I imagine it's related to this. It is related to it. Soul sickness has so many manifestations and it seems like weekly there's another new manifestation. There's a crack in the soul of our culture that's growing and it shows up in numerous ways and places. I always come back to It has to come back to what is the health of my soul? What is the character of my being? What is, where are the cracks in my character? Where is, how is my integrity? Am I able to keep my word? Do I know how to negotiate? I'm realizing recently in recent conflicts with people that have inspired an article that I'm working on called The Anatomy of an Apology. Most people don't even know how to make an apology, a proper apology. Often it turns into a defense of their position or an explanation of behavior, which an apology has to count the person who was offended. It has to count the person who was hurt, the person who felt discounted. So very core, fundamental, foundational aspects of being a human being, that's where any healing in the cultural soul has to start there, has to start here, in here, and in between us. I'm having this interesting sensation as I talk to you. I'm becoming more and more aware of my brokenness, and not in a bad way, but just like what you're talking about is so essential. Well, these are easy to go go around like okay, now I'm going to do this, now I'm going to do that, and miss the health of the soul. Right, and we've seen it more. There has been an escalation of it when the pandemic landed on our doorsteps and in our lives. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. And we've realized, especially in the West, the lack of support, the lack of netting, and the dysfunction of the medical system and how broken 
all of the systems are just exposed all of the shadow of Western culture. So it exposed the brokenness that we are able to pretend didn't exist as long as we have unlimited access to about anything we wanted, right? We put up with a lot. We tolerated a lot. And then, and then it stopped, literally stopped. Quarantine, shut down, closed down. Everything stopped, paused. And so everything that had been in shadow all of a sudden was out in the open. All the unresolved angers, unresolved discounts, unresolved brokenness and betrayals came out in the culture and mass. And that's where we are now. It's almost was a permission to act out everything that had been swept under the rug. And I've just watched with horror the loss of kindness, the rise of cruelty and acting out. It's not that hard to be kind, but it seems like it's the most difficult thing these days. And it's incredibly sad. And I'm very, very worried about where this is going. How do you manage your relationship to the news? Of the pandemic, when it first broke? All of it. Like social media, the news, the balance between being informed and being engaged. And also when you can see through some of this, how useful is it to know about each school shooting and how do you negotiate that for you? Well, paying really close attention to my internal responses and feeling plus what you're talking about, the news source and the news and social media, it's all mental, right? It's meant to disassociate you from your feelings. And if you know that, if you know that's one of its functions is to disassociate you from your feeling practice. We certainly can't have a culture that's feeling and actually responding to what's real and saying this doesn't feel very good because that doesn't sell products. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. So if you know what its function is to disassociate you from feeling, that's a, the first place and be aware of it because it's real easy to feel and then something else will flash across and suddenly you're out of your body, you're not feeling and you're in your mental state again, or you're being reactive to it. So feeling, 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 feeling. How does this feel? How does this feel? What is my news threshold? How much can I take? And paying attention to it. The moment you start feeling nauseous, that's a good time to stop and to sit with that and feel what it is and have conversations with yourself because so much of that is terrifying. and destabilizing and can really activate a sense of, well, it activates all your survival responses. And there's always a balance between survival needs and what other aspects of life need tending to. So I do pay attention to the news and what's happening. And I feel, and I do readings on what do I need to do? How much cash do I need to have on hand? How much food do I need to have? Is my home secure? Is my water supply secure? Basic things. Do I have extra things if there's an extended power outage? And I know some people were saying that's reactionary or, but I'm a farmer. I grew up on a farm and we did these things all the time. It's being prepared for the unexpected, the unknown. And there's a way to do it without being extremist about it. And would you say there's a way to do it without 
living in fear every day? Yeah, there is. Yes. But noticing the fear and tending to it and having conversations with the parts of you, which is usually very young ego states, and saying the mature, grown-up adult parts, nurturing mother and father, grandmother, they're tending to these things. And so noticing the fear and having a conversation, yes, fear is informative. It's there for a reason. And there are different kinds of fear and noticing the subtleties of them. And grief, what function does it play in all of this healing? Well, for most of my adult life, I have been a student of soul and fascinated with what is soul and how does it feel and what is its function. And more so when the title of the book and writing this book became part of my life a couple of years ago. And that accelerated my study of soul and the interaction and the meeting place of earth and being on earth and being an expression of earth and as an herbalist and working with plants and the soul in all things escalated my study and noticing and questioning and experiencing of it. And then it was accelerated again when grief entered our lives with the illness and long, horrible illness of my love of my life and taking care of him through his death. And when he became ill, we agreed that we would go through his dying the same way we went through our life, undefended, vulnerable, honest, intimate, and that we had a rare opportunity to grieve together throughout it and talk about everything, our rage, anger, and our disappointments, our fears, and all the times watching grief start to build a cathedral in my interior house. It wasn't a small room. It was taking up a big entire cathedral. It's like, and I thought, well, I guess we're going to be doing this for some time. I'm a good student, and grief is a powerful, powerful teacher and archetypal energy. And I've not been one to be afraid of darkness and shadow. And so when this great teacher built a house, a room inside my house, I let it lead the way. And I was in devotion to what I had to teach. And it's far, far, far from done. In some ways, we're just kind of at the end of the beginning we're not even in the middle part yet. We keep going deeper and deeper and literally a descent. So grief is soul work, almost an epitome of soul work because soul is down and deep and it's in the darkness. It's in water where spirit is ascending and it's upward. And I've been more interested in what's under the ground, where nurturing, where sustenance comes from deep in the darkness of earth and in the depths of water and the depths of soul. And so there are so many strata of grief keep going deeper and deeper. And I stop at each one. And so grief, the function of grief is to grow soul. It's an experience of soul. It's a thickening of thickened soul. It enriches it. It gives it experiences that only grief can give it. And it is the kind of, it's animistic. And I didn't know this until I was in the throes of it. And I would be out in the land, in this holy land of our home, and sobbing and wailing and wailing and talking to the trees and 
oak, which is my mentor, and sobbing at the oak and feeling held, feeling held and hearing that this is the place where this kind of grieving needs to happen out here in the wilds with the Mm -hmm. plants, air, with the animals, because it's very animistic. That kind of grief is kind of a, it's a roaring of the wild. It's a roaring of soul. And everything out here knows that kind of grief. Everything in the wild earth knows that kind of grief and it can hold it. And it doesn't try to tell you it's going to be better. It'll change. It just holds what is in that moment without anything except for being there and holding it. And there's a tremendous freedom in that. That's one of the functions of grief. There are many functions of grief. One of it is that people will say, it cracks you open. Grief cracks you open. So I've been thinking about that and walking around that. And yeah, yep, that's what it feels like. And feel totally, completely cracked, split, wide open. But then what? What happens in that crack, in the cracking open? What's happening in the cracking open? We need to hold that space of the cracking open and be in the cracking open. If you imagine the cracking, it's splitting, it's shattering and it's splitting everything that had gone before, everything that had gone before. It's splitting the membrane of culture, splitting the membrane of families, splitting the membrane of beliefs. And in that splitting, you see differently. I see differently. It's like it's in this cracking open. It has removed lenses. It has removed dusty, faded ways of seeing. And I can see more clearly. And I'm much more sensitive, much more sensitive, which is one of its functions is to remove the desensitizations, to remove Mm. the cultural lenses so that you start to see purely. You start to see which is amazing and disconcerting to a lot of people around you. A lot of people are really uncomfortable with the new you that comes out of this cracking open, out of being a student of grief. But this cracking open and the gift of being cracked open and staying cracked open gets foreshortened. And soon people go back to putting back those, picking up those pieces and putting back on, putting those layers back on which is, I find that thought of that incredibly sad, but it is a function of, I don't know if we can have true elders in our culture without going through the fires and the forges and the strata of grief and soul. And I'm not through it. There will be more teachings and more understandings of it and deeper integrations as time goes on. There's a saying that When a beloved dies, part of you dies, part of me died with him and went to the land of the dead. And it's easy to do that. It's easy to go to the land of the dead. Deciding to go back to the land of the living is more difficult. It takes longer. And it's a decision to make over and over and over again. I'm so grateful that you're willing to share what you're learning and some of your experience with me and with others who listen, it's sacred and it's precious and it's so important. We owe it to each other. We owe it to the dead. We owe it to grief. We owe it to the ancestors. It's our responsibility. We have a responsibility. We have a moral responsibility to talk about these things, not just talk about them, but to 
be them to ask the questions, to go into the places that are difficult to go into and to let them change us. That's the function. Become something different. So what's the hardest thing in life then? The hardest thing is to become a human being. Maybe the hardest thing is deciding that you want to become a human being. We're born homo sapiens. Becoming a human being, that's one of the functions of grief too and loss is to become a human being because it's a decision of many, many facets. Decision to be honorable. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be honorable? It, it means to keep your word, to show up, to pay attention, to be kind, to feed the soul of another human being, another being, another member of the biotic community that we live with, earth with. It means to have integrity. Well, what is integrity? It means to be integrated, to be as one, to be that everything that I say and do uh, is integral, is integrated in as part of my beliefs and my behaviors and my character. Becoming a human being is really put to the test when our character is tested. Was that Louis Armstrong said, adversity is the test of character. How you weather adversity determines your character. Whether adversity with integrity, with honorability, with moral honesty, it means when I go to bed at night and scroll through my day and my interactions, did I add to life? Or were there places where I stole from it, or I took from it, or I denigrated it? Did I add to something? Did I make it better? Did I become a better person on this day? Can I sleep in peace knowing I did my best, knowing that I honored life, that I treated it as sacred, that I spoke from my heart and from my heart to another heart? Did I do that? Did I keep my agreements? If I can't keep my agreements, the moment you know you can't keep your agreement, it's time to learn to negotiate. Learn to negotiate. It counts the other person. We need to count. We need to count other beings to take them into account and to be accountable to, to account for ourselves and our behaviors and learn how to apologize. I mean, truly humility in apology, that the apology is not about me. It's about you. It's about you that I went unconscious, that I said something that somehow in what I said or did discounted you or you felt bad or, or worse, that the apology counts you that it's not, it's about you. It's not about me. So you can see it is the hardest thing in life to become a human being. Wow. I've taken so many notes. I know I'm supposed to be interviewing, but I'm going to be listening to this a few times because you've been so generous with wisdom and learning and that like embodied learning. I can, I can feel that you're living the interiority of this. This isn't just off the top of your head ideas. And that's what I respect so much about what you're sharing. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about today or say? Well, that last comment is real important because it sort of encapsulates what we've been talking about. And what we started with is that trusting your body, trusting your feeling sense, trusting your senses. You can sense authenticity. You can sense when you're being hustled. You can sense and trust that. And trust that, trust your body, build that foundation of trust, get to know yourself so that 
you have an ally, you have an ally. All of life celebrates, all of life celebrates when we do this work. It's not mm-hmm. just us. They enjoy it. They enjoy the companionship. They celebrate it when we can come to them with a new part of it. They sense the changes that we're making and they celebrate it and find companionship in it. That is so beautiful. I came back to the land in this forest and walk around the land. I brought rose buds with me. Somebody had sent me a box of rose buds. And so I brought them with me and I'm scattering them along the land and saying, I love you. I missed you. And noticing the response of the land. And that was last night when I arrived. And this morning, there's an old, old, unusually big old, for this area, the Southwest, unusually big old oak tree. It's canopy. It's like an umbrella, a 60-foot umbrella that I've been sitting with for a number of years. An interesting thing happened this morning. As I was walking toward it, and I had my heart extended and all my senses extended, and walking toward it, and suddenly I was weeping with joy, weeping with joy. And, I, and it was coming from the tree that I was responding to. And I asked, what is this? And the communication back was, you're doing the work. Celebrate, you're doing the work. We're so happy you're doing this difficult, difficult work. That's so beautiful. We're not alone. Oh my God. Well, Julie, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's my my honor, my pleasure. If this resonates with you, be sure to subscribe so you get all the juicy episodes to come. And if you have a friend who is deep into their personal growth and healing journey, share this podcast with them too. Now go out and experience the aliveness that's here for you today.